Check one, two. Hey, everybody. Good evening. There it is. And God said, let there be light. All right. If, if you don't know me, uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, uh, that's right. Amen on that one. I thought that was Nick Ballou at first, but that's all right. My name's Alex Smith, and I work with the college and young adults here at Taylor's, and also I'm currently our men's director here at Taylor's. And we typically are setting up for the gathering. That meets on Wednesday nights for our college students. But they're just now moving back in for the semester, and so we will launch next week. And so with me not doing that tonight, Pastor Josh asked if I'd come up and welcome you all and just kind of give you a quick state of what's happening in our college ministry. Um, I'm really excited. If you've seen on Sunday mornings during the school semesters and on Wednesday evenings, hopefully you've seen a lot of young adult faces walking around because the Lord has just been blessing that area of ministry over the past several years. We've seen God's hand work in a really mighty way numerically here at Taylor's with our young adult ministry. We had, I think we peaked out at 123 last semester on a Wednesday night. Those are volunteering students coming to hear God's word, nothing they have to do. And a lot of these students for this area, many of you know, we have Bob Jones and North Green University just up the way or Harvard on the Hill as we called it when I was there. And so they already have chapel two, three, and sometimes four times a week, depending on the week. And so they're still coming voluntarily to come and learn from God's Word on Wednesday nights and to come on Sundays and to serve in our children's ministries and student ministries and different teams here at church. And so I'm, I'm praising the Lord for that. That's an awesome testimony to see what God has done through the years and what He's continuing to do. But then also... We're seeing God use these students and young adults in a really mighty way. I, uh, I want to say thank you to you, church, Taylors, for being intentional in a lot of different ways. This past Sunday, I flew back from Chicago, Illinois, just before all the big snow happened. Uh, it did snow on us, but um, dressed like this just about all the time ain't going to cut it up there, I can tell you that. I tell you, we're walking downtown Chicago, and I haven't been there since early high school years. It's like a canyon, man-made canyon walking through that place. Listen, when I go somewhere where the buildings are taller than my pine trees, something's not right, okay? But we were in Chicago. My wife and I, we were up there because we got the opportunity to invest, and I was able to marry a set of students here uh, that, that met here at Bob Jones University and came and attended our church, and one's from uh, West Virginia and one's from Indiana, and they got married in, Indiana, in our hometown of Indiana. But it was really cool. And here's the testimony I want to give you. Through being able to do that, I invested in their life. And Hannah, my wife, invested in their life for the past three years. They asked me to be a part of their, their wedding. And I said, I would love the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And in doing so, the night before at the uh, rehearsal dinner, uh, there's always some speeches that are given. And our church kept getting brought up every time. We sent our students down, we sent our kids down to South Carolina, and you never know, you know, what they're going to do at college, and we're just, we're praying for them, but they got invested in a church, and I kept hearing that over, and they got invested in a church, and Taylor's, you know, invested in them, and this, and then in the wedding ceremony, I was able to just say, you know, they're part of our college ministry here at Taylor's, and so on and so forth, and uh, for the vow portion, Trevor's dad wanted to do the vow portion, and even in his speech of just talking to the congregation, of how impactful it's been as a father to send his son many hours away 
to a university where they got plugged into a Bible-believing church that believes in Jesus Christ, that preaches God's word, and to now see them get married in holy matrimony in a way that honors the Lord, and then that they are moving back to South Carolina to stay in our area, to work here, and guess what? To serve here in our ministries that we have at our church. And so they're volunteers. They help out in different ways. But that's just one couple, and I can name you four others who have done the very similar thing that serve in our church today. Even some on our administration staff uh, upstairs with uh, us on, on staff. And so it's just been really encouraging, not just to invest numerically and see God provide that way, but watch the hearts grow and watch these students come to learn, but also come back to invest and be intentional with that. So church, I'm telling you that to say thank you so much for what you're doing from our preschool and children's ministries through our collegiate young adult and adult ministries here at Taylor's. I'm very thankful to see that. And Pastor Josh didn't pay me to say that one. That's something that I'm just, I'm in my heart, seriously. It's encouraging to see a multi-generational church really believe in that. And I'm appreciative of that. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, I better run off stage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, and we thank you for everything you have given us. God, we are a testimony, as we sit here tonight, of just your grace and your goodness. God, your word reminds us over and over again of your faithful love, but God, also how you hold us to a standard, and we're called to live a life worthy of the calling. So Lord, tonight, as we study from your word, as we read from your word, as the children are learning downstairs and the students are singing and praising worship just down the hall. Father, would we learn? Would we honor you? Would we be intentional to make your name great in all that we do in our life? And Lord, help us to strive to be more and more like you each and every day. Thank you, Father, for a church that is intentional in investing in all generations. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. And now, from getting... <laughs> It's good. If I'd have known he had done that, I'd let him finish. <laughs> good to see everybody tonight. Welcome back here in January to our uh, Pastor's Bible Study in January. Excited to be back. I really wanted you to hear from Alex. As he said, normally he is taken up with, with a lot of activities on Wednesday night. Um, and he, I know he mentioned it, but even, even seeing last semester, you know, back in uh, August, as the college students come back through, uh, college ministry is one of the harder ministries for churches like us to cultivate and continue. We don't have a university sitting right next door to us, right? So you're you're talking about several in Greenville, but at the same time, uh, getting students who are moving away from home, don't have a home church, but they have a campus, they got campus life, they got stuff going on to get them to kind of leave that and come to a church. That's a big deal, and you've got to create space and an opportunity for them to, lo to, to, to learn, to grow, to get together, to, to uh, build relationships, and uh, even get married. And so uh, Alex has done a great job with that. Even last year, meeting in the loft, which seems like a great spot for them up there, you know, kind of them. But, you know, coming to us and saying, we don't fit in the loft anymore. So we've had to, to move around to the ministry center across the street to where they have more space so they could they can meet. So I love those kind of problems, right? Where we say, you know what, we, we got we to gotta figure out something. And so just really thankful, give him an opportunity for you guys to hear from him um, and, and hear what's going on. Excited to be back with you guys. Uh, I don't know if y'all remember, but the last time we were together, I was going to teach from Leviticus 19, you know, because 
Uh, Y'all were all wondering what it said. And we were going to teach from that, moving through Leviticus. And I got really right up to the good part. And y'all remember what happened? The alarm went off. Fire alarm went off. And I'm sitting there going, what's going on? Before I know it, I'm, I'm looking up and y'all are gone. You know what I'm saying? So everybody's out. And so right thing to do, you handled it well. The alarm goes off. Don't worry it on me. Just get up and, and, and kindly walk on out. So it ended it. To tell y'all something unique about that night that you may not be aware of, Josh Duncan in, in November was getting students to speak, to share, to preach. And so uh, our middle schoolers meet on, on Wednesday night. And so uh, Levi, Levi, you here? You back there? There he is. So Levi was doing his first sermon. He's a senior. Josh had asked him to do his first sermon that night. So I'm teaching Leviticus. Levi is preaching to the middle school down there as we work through his first sermon ever. And he got his first point done too. And the fire alarm went off. And so I told him, son, if you go into the ministry for the rest of your life, you will tell them your first sermon was cut short by a fire alarm, right? I mean, it will be a story that will live because I've been preaching now for several years, really since the late 1900s. Uh, and, and that was my first time that a fire alarm has gone off while I'm preaching. So I had to go back and remind myself where we were. And I'm asking you, if you will, to turn with me to Leviticus 19 again. And a really great passage in the middle of a fantastic book. Some of y'all, uh, I'll make my joke as I always make, you, you, you know, you started your Bible reading plans for the year, so you're still going strong, you know. Genesis, you may have made, if you're doing the Bible recap with the ladies, you may be in Job because you, you're going through the chronological order, uh, but you hadn't gotten Leviticus yet. So the test of any good Bible reading plan, if you're going to make it through the year, you got to, my buddy ran a 100-mile ultra marathon this past week. The only time, I told him, I haven't run since 1999 at full speed. And the only time I ever ran was because somebody was mad at me or angry or punishing me for something that I was supposed to be doing, right? And so he is joyfully running a 100-mile ultra marathon. He ran for over 24 hours straight. Same thing. You want to go, wow, that's impressive, and wow, that's idiotic at the same time. I asked him, I said, when did you hit your first wall? Because I would have hit it half a mile in. He said, mile 41. I thought I was going to have to quit. And I'm sitting there going, you made it to mile 41? And I, you, you, that was the first time you felt like I can't do it anymore? He said, yeah, but I took a few Advil, and man, mile 42 through 56 were the best miles of my race. You know, and I'm sitting there going... He said, then mile 82, I felt like, man, I don't know if I can get these last. But then I realized I only got 18 more to go. How are you going to get the 18 more miles to go and think, okay, I can make it now? Long story short, Bible reading plans, which a lot of you are doing through our men's ministry and others, you hit your first wall in Leviticus, right? Let me encourage you to take a couple Advil and push right through. 
It is good for you. And the Bible, as I've said many times, is sometimes it's going to be like a Tylenol and sometimes it's going to be like a vitamin, right? Sometimes we read it because we're hurting and we need something to comfort us, to strengthen us, to give us something to help make us through this moment. And the scriptures come like that Tylenol for us. Sometimes we need a vitamin. We are excited and the Lord's doing good and it becomes a greater strength and a greater encouragement to build us up. Sometimes it's a Tylenol, sometimes it's a vitamin, and sometimes it's Leviticus. And so chapter 19, however, and hopefully what we've seen walking through this, and we're going to continue right on through it, hopefully what we've seen walking through this is that Leviticus is chock full of gospel and grace and good news for us. If anything else, Leviticus does its role in pointing us to the fact that the requirements before us to be holy as God is holy are insurmountable in some ways and we are desperate for someone to step in in our place on our behalf. Some sacrifice to be sufficient, something to be enough. And so when we read Leviticus, we get to the other side and we say, thank God for his son, our great and final sacrifice for our sins. And so we get to chapter 19 and nothing's different. If you, if you uh, turn with me to chapter 19, I think chapter 19 finds itself again at the central message of Leviticus. If you remember, I said Leviticus has two main points throughout it. One, that God's people are distinct and should live holy lives. And two, that God's people are sinful and should offer sacrifices. Those are the two part. We're sinful. We need sacrifices. We are distinct. We live holy. We live holy. We live holy lives. And so those two things in Acts, I mean, Leviticus 19, I've been preaching on Acts on Sunday in case y'all didn't know. Leviticus 19 brings out that call for holiness, brings out that call for holiness. If you look there in Leviticus 19, it simply says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now there's a lot in that passage. Just in that verse alone, just in that line. Remember, Leviticus, we are still at Mount Sinai. We've we've had the Ten Commandments. Remember how the Ten Commandments went? The Ten Commandments went as they got to Sinai, and the Lord comes down. Remember that? He comes down on the mountain, and the mountain, the top of the mountain is covered with a veil of, of smoke and fire, and the Lord begins to speak. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me, right? And so he thunders in his speaking as he speaks to the people. And Moses and all the people are at the base of the mountain hearing God speak the ten as he says them loudly like claps of thunder out of the fire and the smoke from the top of the mountain with the earth quaking at that moment. He's speaking to them. Y'all remember what happens after he finishes the ten? The people say to Moses, don't let him speak to us again. We can't take it. It's too great. We can't do it. I tell you what, 
We need you to go to him. And, and the Lord says, that's good. And Moses now says, you stay here. And Moses enters into the veil, if you will, on the mountain, and he speaks to the Lord. Remember, Joshua goes halfway. Moses goes on into the veil. And he's the veil of smoke. He speaks to the Lord. The Lord speaks to him. And so the revelation we have that Moses has written down for us comes directly from the Lord himself, which means it has the authority of God's revealed word. It's God's revealed word speaking. And what Exodus really does to the people of God is God, through his revelation, revealing himself First there in the wilderness to Moses when he says, I am who I am. Then to the Egyptians when he levels all of their gods through the ten plagues and shows that there is no God like he is. He is greater, stronger, and mightier. Then when he calls his people out, he shows in everything he does his character to his people. He is the deliverer who has come for them. He is the mighty one who can save them out of their bondage. He is the caregiver who leads them out of the place through the pillar of fire by, by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Remember, he leads them and he protects them. The moment the Egyptian army is coming on their tail as they get to between the water and the army and there's no place for them to turn, it says that that pillar of cloud turned and went behind them so as to protect the people. The water splits. They cross on dry ground. Amen to everybody on that? They cross on dry ground. The water comes down. The Egyptian army is dealt with. God has delivered them out of the bondage of slavery, out of that burden. And then he takes them in. And not only is he protecting them, he's delivering them and protecting them, he's also providing for them. That pillar of cloud by, by day, pillar of fire by night, they wake up in the morning and food they need for every day is right there waiting on them, just laying on the ground. All they got to do is pick it up. They get there, they complain about that. God says, I tell you what, I got you. He sends them quail into the camp and they get some quail. Y'all remember what I'm talking about. They get there, they complain about water. I'll take that. He brings water forth from a rock. The Lord is demonstrating and revealing through his works his very nature. He is the provider. He is the protector. He is the one who carries them through the wilderness. And he brings them and says, I am the one who has saved you out of slavery and bondage. The conditions of Sinai were not conditions given to the people that meant whether or not they will be God's people. In other words, he doesn't say, keep this law if you want to be my people. He says, keep this law because you are my people. And there's a huge difference here. He says, I have already saved you and redeemed you. Now here's how you live with me as your God, with me as your God, and you are my people. The Lord saved his people to be with them, to dwell with them. I mean, that's how the whole book ends. Have y'all read Revelation? Y'all got that down. I thought about announcing I'm going to uh, start teaching tonight from the book of Revelation, doubling the crowd because everybody wants to know that one, and then just change it and say, never mind, I'm going to go back to Leviticus. <laughs> Wouldn't have been the right thing to do. But when you read Revelation, how does it end? God has delivered his people finally. His enemies have been dealt with completely. 
and they are dwelling with the Lord God Almighty forever. That's what God's doing in Exodus. And when he gives them the Ten Commandments, he's given them the new government. Here is what it looks like to be in my kingdom, to be my people. Here's how you must live. And so all of this is built off of the Lord saying, I have saved you and redeemed you. Here's now how you live. Your salvation is not conditioned upon this, but this becomes how you live in light of your salvation. Here's how you live. And so ultimately, that idea comes to what we call holiness. Holiness is the idea that we are set apart unto something, right? God is holy. He's distinct. He is different. And we are holy unto the Lord. We are his. And so his holiness is on display at Mount, at Mount Sinai when, when the fire comes down, the thunder shakes and, and all of these things. And, and his holiness is on display whenever he holds people accountable in, in, to his law and to his nature and to his character. His holiness is on display whenever he calls his people unto himself and he always does what is right and he always does what is good. And he loves them and keeps his word at all things. His holiness has been on display. And so now... Walking through Leviticus, as the Lord speaks to Moses there, and he says, you say to the people this. You say to the people this. Speak to all the congregation. Say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You say to them this. Now, they would understand what that means. God has been displaying his holiness to his people from the day he spoke to Moses to the day he delivered them out to the day he walked them through the wilderness to the day he got them to Sinai to the day he came down and spoke to them there with his law. And so God is saying, now, as I am holy, you be holy. You be holy. Now, that's important. You me tell you how important that is. Let's jump from Leviticus to probably a book you know a little bit better, the book of Hebrews. You know what the author of Hebrews tells us, right? Y'all know it. Hebrews chapter 12, 14, verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I just personally will tell you this. I believe the Bible is God's word, right? I believe it from cover to cover. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired to us by the Holy Spirit of God. And while we got some 40 authors over 1,400 years that gives us this one word, we've got one main author, the Holy Spirit, who has inspired every single word of it. Therefore, I do not think God has wasted any language. I don't think he's wasted any words. I don't think there's any place where God, nah, he's just kidding. I think when he says something like this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It should trigger something in our minds. I need to be holy, right? I can't see him without that. And here in Leviticus, he's telling us, be holy, for I am holy. For I am holy. Now, I want us to think through what all that means. Try to look at this and think through what all that means. In chapter 19, 
there's several things here that I want us to, to put into understanding. First of all, you'll see or note how many times. By the way, holy, the word holy or consecrate or sanctify, all of those kind of work together from the same root word, those appear 900 times in Scripture. Those appear 900 times in all of God's word. They appear 143 times in Leviticus. So out of the 900, right, I'm not, I'm not real good at math, but out of the 900, more than 20% of them appear in this book of Leviticus, which I think speaks to the point that Leviticus is trying to get to of what holiness is and what we have been called to. And so here Leviticus makes this its main thrust. And so if Hebrews 12 tells us without holiness no one will see the Lord, and Leviticus's main point is to teach us or show us what holiness looks like ultimately, then this becomes vitally important for us. And I think we can put some things together here. Just a couple things. And I'm just going to give y'all three quick, quick points. And I know this is the first Wednesday night back, and we got to get back into shape. You know what I'm saying? So I'll try to let you out early. How about that? No, I don't think I will. But we'll get to it. The first point is this. God... If we're going to be holy, we need to recognize that God is our standard. If we're going to be holy, God is our standard. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The call for the people of God was for them to live according to God's word, God's truth. Now, understand what I mean. I mean, and put it in the negative we are not to look at any other person, any other thing, or any other place to set the standard by which we live, right? That even goes to comparisons. I've told y'all the story, uh, uh, the story before of when Wiles was born, and I didn't know what I was going to do, right? Did I ever tell y'all that story? I'm sitting there going, I don't have a clue what to do. Wiles is coming home, and I don't know. And I went outside to get the car, Allison's coming down in the wheelchair with Wilds. I'm supposed to have everything ready. I feel real nervous about it, and I don't know if I can handle it. And I look over, and there's another baby leaving at the time, and the dad is out there, and he is on a motorcycle. <laughs> and I literally hear him ask the nurse, did they make car seats for motorcycles? And I thought, you know what, I can do this. <laughs> I don't know if I can be the best dad in the world, but I'm better than that dude. You know what I'm saying? Oftentimes, we lose sight of what holiness means because we try to compare ourselves to other people. And what we recognize is we like to choose the people that we think we're better than to compare ourselves to. Well, I'm not like that one, or I'm not like that one, or I'm not like that one, so I'm okay. And I feel good checking off my conscience box and say, I'm all right because, look, I'm better than they are. The problem in comparison is there's quite often always somebody better than you, right? It's a never-ending cycle. And what we know, if we, if we know anything, we don't like it when people change the rules in the middle of the game. I, me and my brother have lost more sweat and blood over the fact that somebody between us wants to change the rules in the middle of the game. We're going to fight about it. We're going to fuss about it. 
Something's going to happen with it. You know what I'm saying? We don't like it. The, the, uh, the phrase, if you use sports rules, sports phrases like somebody moved the goalpost right when you're about to kick it. You know what I'm saying? Somebody changed the standard right when you were about to set it. Somebody's moving stuff. We don't want that in our jobs. We don't want that in our life. We don't want that in our relationships with husbands and wives. We don't want that. Christmas, you know, Allison will come to me every time. Don't buy anything from me for Christmas. Let's don't get anything for each other. And I ain't playing that game. Don't change on me because I know she'll say that and then there's four presents for me and I didn't get her anything and it's not fair. We don't like it when people change the standard or the rules by which we're supposed to live. It's not fair. It's not right. And Christianity is not happening because our our standard is not me or you or anybody else. Our standard is the Lord and what he's called us to. We look to him, and he's not changed. He's always the same. His goalposts have not moved. His rules have been the same since they were there on Sinai. They are the same. And so we know how we are supposed to live. We know what holiness looks like because our Lord God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the standard by which we turn to. Not anybody else and not anything else. I don't know about y'all, but in the midst of a culture and a society that is shifting so fast in so many different directions, I'm thanking God that I don't have to keep up with all of that, right? That I can just say, here's my standard, the Lord and his word. Here's what I'll be measured by. Here's what I have to turn to. That's my standard. And so we don't have to run that rat race of keeping up with the latest or the newest or this person or that person. Remember the scene, by the way, where it's pictured just in a little sense after the resurrection and Peter is being restored by Jesus. And as he's being restored, Peter does a little bit of Peter stuff and he keeps saying, well, what about that guy? What about that guy? What about John, right? What about him? And the Lord says, don't, don't, don't worry about that. Here's what you do, right? That's what the Lord's saying here. Here is what you as a people. Don't look at the other ancient Near Eastern family groups. Don't look at the other peoples around you. Don't look at the Canaanites. If you compare yourself to the Canaanites, you'll think you're okay. Don't look to them. Don't look to anybody. You look to me as your standard. I am the Lord. Your God, I am holy, and you be holy like I am holy. We need to remember that God's standard is the, the standard of holiness is the Lord Himself. But not only is the standard of holiness the Lord, we then take it to the next step. His word is our guide in holiness. I've alluded to this. This is not anything, anything that's that's different. I would want to tell you or point out maybe some things of how you see Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments. And Leviticus 19, and you can lay those two together and you'll see some strong correlations between Exodus 20 and Leviticus 19. You see it in Exodus 20, you have, you know, all of the commandments. Like, like look with me to uh, Exodus uh, 19 verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves any gods or cast metals, right? You start seeing how those things come together. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Verse 3. Revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. Y'all see, see what he's doing here? He's just simply saying, you be holy for I am holy. And then he walks them through the laws that he gave on Sinai. 
He walks them through the standards that he laid out on Sinai. You be holy, for I am holy. Keep my Sabbaths. Obey your parents. Do not turn to idols. It then goes down. I mean, what you, you have ultimately... Uh, you have ultimately the, the statement here of loving your neighbor as yourself. If you see moving down here through chapter 19, looking down in verse 16, you shall not go around as a slander among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as as yourself. All of that language sounds just like Jesus in the New Testament, right? He's saying this is the standard by which we live. This is the standard by which we do. And he's walking them through of what that means. By the way, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor unless you incur sin on him. Notice that the other place I want to point you to is the book of James. It's almost like a three-chapter here because you, you have Exodus 20. Then in the midst of that, you have Leviticus 19. And then if you want to point out how these Old Testament books bear out in the New Testament, clearly with the same language, you go to James chapter 5. All three of these chapters parallel each other in some way that Leviticus 19 becomes the connector for those two. They jump back into this same thing. With the same passage. And James tells us, you shall not commit murder. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, right? And he's bringing out this idea that the Lord establishes here in Leviticus 19 even. The Lord is saying, here's my standard, and it has not changed. I've told you this the first time I spoke to you at Sinai. And I'm telling you this in Leviticus and I'm telling you this in James. Love your neighbor. Here's how you live. All of this stays the same. Across testaments even, it moves toward the same. The Lord does not change. His word is our God in these things. Therefore, as we seek to imitate him, we must become familiar with his word. His word is his revelation of himself. When you put... When you uh, read, for example, a passage like Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 has a famous verse in it that we know really well. It has several famous verses. Romans 8 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. I mean, not that we can, you know, list out the great chapters of the Bible, but you probably wouldn't put 1 Chronicles 1 right next to Romans 8 is what you want. You know what I'm saying? Like, like Romans 8 is incredible. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God. And in the middle is this just, just onslaught of the goodness of God for his people and how he has come to save us, redeem us, and give us life. And in the middle of that, we have that verse. You know, all things work together for the good of those who love you. You know, all things work together for the good. I had a, a good friend in, in seminary. And uh, he, him and his wife were getting to the end. They were in Ph.D. work. And so they were getting to the end, and they were trying to have children. They had five straight miscarriages. And so they were just distraught at the fifth one. Um, the fifth one had gone longer than the others. They thought it was okay, and it just didn't work. And one of, one of the uh, friends and church members, also a professor, 
went to them, and, and, and this, was, this was the guy who had the five straight miscarriages, his testimony. Um, he said that that minister professor came to him and said, you know, oftentimes people quote us Romans 8.28 in times like this. But I usually find in the midst of crisis, that's not real helpful. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, hey, suck it up. All things are going to work together for good. You're still hurting, you know. But the guy said, you know, I'm not going to quote that one to you. I'm going to quote what comes after. And what comes after is, is that the Lord is going to carve you into the image of his son. And he said the most comforting thing was knowing that whatever happens to me, even in these difficulties, the reason why it is good is not because it made me feel great. It's because that the end of it is that will be in the image of Christ Jesus. That he's making me into the image of Christ. That's what holiness means. We are to be holy as he is holy. We're to reflect him. We're to look like him. And if we're going to do that, we must know his word. We must follow it as the guide. If the people of God didn't have the Lord speaking to Moses and saying, tell them this, they wouldn't know what's expected. But now, with God's revelation having given, we don't have to question it. Amen? We don't have to worry about what God's expecting from us. He's told us. We don't have to go, I don't know what to do next. We don't have to sit back and go, I don't know where. The Lord has given us his guide. We don't, he doesn't leave us guessing. He's not hiding from us. He has revealed himself to us. He's given us his word. And so we know. And so if we know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Be holy for the Lord is holy. Therefore, we must look to him as our standard and follow his word as our guide. Follow his word as our guide. And then, then finally, we must understand that we are different. Or as some would say, distinct distinct from others really what most of chapter 19 is are object lessons in holiness you shall keep my statutes verse 19 you shall not let the cattle breed with a different kind you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material what is the lord doing he's using object lessons to teach his people that you are distinct you are different you don't look to the world as to how you set up your stuff. You look to me as to how you live and how you are to act and how you are to behave. I am the standard, and here's what it means. And so here's what it looks like. And these object lessons gives them a picture of we don't, we don't mix who God is with what the world is. We look to him and him alone. That's what holiness looks like. As he skips over to chapter 20, in chapter 20, he, he comes in verse 23 and 24, and he says, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving you out before. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Don't be like Egypt. Don't be like them. You see, it's their sinfulness that led to their destruction. If you don't follow after me in holiness, then you will receive the just penalty for your rebellion to what is right and good. Don't be like Egypt, he says. Don't be like them. How many times is that lesson taught over and over again in Scripture? It was taught in Genesis, right? 
It's taught in Genesis whenever Lot finally gets drug out of Sodom and Gomorrah after he's been told over and over again not to stay, time to leave. The Lord finally goes and gets him and pulls him out. But his wife had so much remorse and love for what happened there. What did she do? The Lord said, don't turn back. She looks back and that's it. It's the idea that I'm leaving that behind. I'm looking to something that's greater. The Lord says, you got to leave Egypt behind and you got to march into the promised land with me. I'm your standard. You come with me. But he keeps going. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You are distinct. You are different. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You should be mine. We as Christian people have been bought with a price, a sacrifice that was given on our behalf. Therefore, we, we belong to the Lord. We belong to him. He says, you are mine, but guess what that exchange means? You are mine and I am yours, he says. We are distinct from everyone else. That's what holiness means. These object lessons come through. They come through. They're not just about immorality in essence, although that's definitely there, how you live. They're also about who you love, what you do. It's how you, how you care for others. For example, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man. Amen? My beard is gray. So y'all read that. Y'all understand it, right? Here's how you treat others. You shall stand up and honor the old man. You shall fear your God. We're not going to be a society that casts our people as they get older and useless to us to the side. We honor them. We care for them. We are different. He keeps going. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, in verse, in verse 33, in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In fact, he says, I am the Lord your God seven times. Every single time he gives one of these statutes, he follows with, I am the Lord your God. Why does he do that? In some way, he's saying, I know you may not like it. It may go against your natural desires. But here's how you're going to live if you're with me. I'm the Lord your God. And before y'all go, man, that's hard. He's being hard on them. Y'all that had kids, y'all did it every single day all the time. Because at the end of the day, why are you picking, making me do that, mom and dad? Because I'm your dad. You know what I'm saying? Ultimately, the Lord's saying, I am the one. I've redeemed you. I've saved you. I've called you to myself. Here is my standard. Here's who's telling you that I'm the Lord your God. Love the sojourner. You know, we live in, I, don't, I do not. Y'all know me. The last thing I want to do is spoil our time together by getting political. At the same time, we live in a, a, a world that has laws and has rules and all these other things. And I want to say this. I am for us having a secure border for our country. Amen. I, don't clap at that. Y'all see, I say something political, y'all start clapping. I talk about Jesus and y'all sitting back there looking at your phones. 
That's why I can't do it. I will say this. If a stranger or a sojourner comes to my door, I will welcome them into my house. Do you hear what I'm saying? We can still say one thing and still do the other. I'm not going to cast someone out. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, when you do it to the least of them, you've done it unto me. So welcome into my kingdom. Why? Because when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I needed clothing, you clothed me. You cared for me. So we will be known by how we care for the stranger and the soldier. So before we can say to anything, yeah, we want to make sure our laws are safe and those things are good and they're for the good of all people. At the same time, if they come to my door, they're welcome into my house. I'm going to care for anybody I can and find a place for them to go, for them to be covered. And if you can't do that and you're cold-hearted enough not to care for someone who is in need, then at the end of the day, you've got real questions here with what the Lord is saying. Real questions here because he says, listen to how this is, is done. I am the Lord your God. And so that's my, my point in saying all that is to say you can see why Israel would say, why would you want us to do that? Well, I'm the Lord your God and here's what it looks like. Because you were a stranger and a sojourner and I took care of you. So it is for us. We got to remember, spiritually we were beggars. Spiritually we were desperate. Spiritually we could not help ourselves and while we're desperate beggars who are blind and dead in our trespasses and sins, the Lord came to us. Came to us. And so we need to see, the Lord is saying, I have shown you my character. Now you live like me before others. You live like me before others. I want to get to this last point, and I'm closing out right here. Chapter 20, verse 8, look down there. Verse 7, consecrate yourselves. That's in other words of saying, be holy. Therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. At the end of the day, the Lord is the one who makes us holy. The Lord is the one who sanctifies us. In other words, as you read this and, and, we, and we get to it, what, what Leviticus is teaching us is that we are sinful and we need a lot of sacrifices. And what we've talked about over and over again is when you read Leviticus, it's a bloody book, isn't it? Could you guys imagine recognizing your sinfulness and then going, what do I need to do about it? Yeah, well, you need to bring a couple turtle doves, a heifer every once a year. You need to make sure that you got your house covered in this. You got to have this and that. You're talking about 15 to 20 sacrifices and then you got to make that on a regular monthly basis. You got a weekly sacrifice you got monthly you got yearly you got sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and that's just so you can be a part of God's family you can dwell with his people you got all of that you have to do just to be with them just to be a part of God's people God's saying here's what's required of you and what you know as you read this you go I can't I can't do it and that's why we say Leviticus tells us, thank God for Christ. That there's really, all of those sacrifices of Leviticus, all of them added up, point us to the one great sacrifice. Right? Because the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could really do nothing. They were just a placeholder until the great sacrifice came for us. Once, not weekly, not monthly, 
not yearly, once and for all, Christ Jesus came. So if we're going to be set apart, it's not going to be by the blood of bulls and goats. It's going to be by the blood of the perfect lamb of God who died in our place. But not only that, how do we pursue after holiness? You may say, Josh, what do we do? Well, think about Acts chapter, chapter 26, verse 18. Back to Acts, we'll be there. Acts 26, 18, Paul is defending himself before Agrippa, and he says, to open their eyes. This is what I'm doing. The Lord's sending Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me. How are we made holy? First and foremost, by faith. Because we can never do enough and we can never be enough in our sinfulness. But Jesus has done it all and he is everything. And he says, believe in me. And not only will you have everlasting life, you will be mine, I will be yours. As Paul puts it, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And how did he begin that? I have been crucified with Christ. He's the sacrifice. I no longer live. He lives in me. The life I lived is now done. Now I live unto him. My life has been set apart because Jesus purchased me back. And it's not like the Catholic church may say when it says you got to do three miracles to be a saint. We are saints of God because Christ Jesus made us saints, set apart as his people. Holiness comes to us, not in our efforts, but by faith and trusting in the one who has done it on our behalf. And now how do we remain or how do we pursue after holiness? And what the scripture teaches us over and over again is that holiness is not about moralism. Hear me when I say this. We are not legalists. We are not people who say, if you don't drink or you don't smoke or you don't chew, everything's good with you, right? We're not moralists or legalists. We are a people who are dependent upon Jesus. And so we don't do those things that are immoral that the scriptures have taught us are immoral. We don't do those because our desire is to honor our Savior. How do we pursue holiness? We live as Christ has taught us to live. Christianity is really, really simple. It's not like it's easy, but it's simple. It's loving Jesus and hating our sin. And I would say that's what holiness means. Loving Christ Jesus and hating our sin, pursuing after him, who are those going to be in heaven? Those who by faith have trusted in Christ and repented of their sins. Turn from them. The Lord says that's what holiness means. That's what holiness means. That you're trusting by faith in Jesus and you've turned from your ways that you once were and now you're following after Jesus. You're following him. The Lord says, I'm about to take y'all somewhere, right? The whole picture 
of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is the Lord coming in, saving them, pulling them out of slavery and bondage, redeeming them, right? Taking them somewhere now as he leads them on to the promised land. Taking them somewhere. And he's saying, now that I've saved you and redeemed you, follow me. I'm going to take you home. Follow me and I'll do it. And so here, that becomes a picture. The whole exodus, the whole salvation of Israel into the promised land becomes a picture of our own journey of the Lord coming and saving us out of our sin, out of the bondage of slavery, redeeming us and saying, come follow me. I'll take you safely home. All of that's been accomplished through Christ. Holiness is not moralism. It's about pursuing Jesus, following him. Be holy. The Lord is our standard. His word is our guide. Be distinct. Be different. Follow after the Lord, not this world. For Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice who has set us apart for his name. And Jesus is the one who's leading us, the new and greater Moses, home to the promised land, where one day, finally and completely, we'll be out of that wandering in the wilderness as sojourners and pilgrims, and we'll be home safely in something better than Canaan, right? Home safely in something better there, heaven itself. The Lord says, pursue holiness, for without it, no one sees the Lord. Jesus is the one who has set us apart, and Jesus is the one who will bring us home. That's the purpose, I think, of what Leviticus 19, tying together Exodus 20, bringing together James 5, pulling it all together, teaches us as we look through God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in allowing us the privilege of knowing you through your word, knowing you through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for in, how in Christ you have done everything for us. There's nothing left for us but to follow you. Make us holy. Keep us, Father, following after you. Thank you for all things that you've given us. Of course, Christ in everything. And it's in, in his name we pray. Amen. Today is my wife's birthday. Y'all see Allison? Say happy birthday to her. It'll mean the world. Tell her she look just like she's 32. And... <laughs> And uh, so, yes, she's a lot younger but, than I am, but uh, she, it is her birthday. Tell her happy birthday. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday.